I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only that there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Those harsh words followed directly after the Apostle Paul's brief greeting in his letter to the churches of Galatia. And the most shocking thing he said, he said twice, so no one would miss it. Let him be accursed. If the kids weren't in here this morning, I'd put that in more colloquial terms. I'll leave it up to you to translate the word accursed. But any way you put it, that's not a nice thing to say, and I'm sure some were offended by it. Certainly wasn't seeker-sensitive. But then again, Paul wasn't trying to please men, as he goes on to readily admit. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. A bondservant of Christ cannot worry about pleasing men. That's not to suggest he should be unnecessarily antagonistic or to have utter disdain or disregard for the feelings of others. But he cannot allow the fear of offending someone, keep him from saying what his master would have him say. He must not limit his message to things that will be culturally acceptable, liked, and popular. Paul knew when he said the Galatians were deserting Christ and had bought into a distorted gospel, they wouldn't like it. But it didn't stop him. And even more offensive was his audacity to declare that if anyone should preach anything other than what he had already preached to them, he should be accursed. Now, Paul is not just being judgmental of others when he says that. The we includes Paul. It didn't matter who said it. Anyone who would dare to change the gospel should be condemned to hell be they Paul's co-workers, apostles, angels, or Paul himself. The gospel that Paul delivered to the Galatians was not something that could be altered by anyone. What they had received was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That was Paul's assertion, so help him God. But how did they know that they'd been told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And even more importantly, how do we know if we have been told the truth, 
the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You know, even though the Galatians were questioning it, they had heard it from an apostle, but none of us have. So how do we know that the one who shares the gospel with us has it right? Isn't it possible that we're hearing it from someone who is more like uh, the Apollos that we read about in the 18th chapter of Acts? He was a powerful preacher, and he knew the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, but there were some holes in his theology. He hadn't been taught about the Holy Spirit. And his understanding of baptism was inadequate. So Priscilla and Aquila had to take aside the preacher and explain to him the way of God more accurately. How are the Galatians to know whether they had received the gospel from an Apollos or from one with full and accurate knowledge of the gospel? How are they to know that Paul was right and the Judaizers were wrong? Paul has to answer that question before they will accept what he has to say, and particularly what he has to say about grace, an understanding that differed markedly from what they were being taught by those who insisted that Christians had to abide by all the laws, traditions, restrictions, and obligations of the Old Testament before they could be found acceptable to God. They wouldn't hear what he had to say until they knew why they should listen to him. So Paul begins the defense of his apostleship and the gospel he had preached to the Galatians. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul begins by stating in no uncertain terms that the gospel he preached wasn't something he made up or even got from another man. The gospel he declared came through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, if he could support that claim, that would settle it. If his gospel came directly from Jesus Christ, who could dispute it? Now, we know from the book of Acts that what he is saying is true. We looked at his conversion experience on the road to Damascus last week. We read of Christ's post-resurrection, post-ascension appearance to Paul, and of Paul's direct commission as an apostle. The Galatians, however couldn't look up the account in the book of Acts. Luke hadn't yet written it. And just saying it's so doesn't make it so. Besides, don't most who say they have a message from God claim that it came directly from him? So how could the Galatians and how can we determine whether or not the preacher is telling us the truth. In other words, how can we check out the preacher? Now, obviously, we have at our disposal a resource the Galatians didn't have. We have the complete revelation of God and can compare anything that is said 
against that which is written in God's word. But even if we have a good working knowledge of Scripture, we can be led astray. Scripture can be twisted and distorted, and a persuasive preacher can cause us to question our understanding, even if it's right. So how do we know if we should listen to him? Again, how do we check out the preacher? I think Paul would have us do what he invited the Galatians to do. Check out his life, his calling, and his sources. He begins by opening up his past to the Galatians and inviting them to check out his life. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul didn't try to hide anything about his life. He was an open book. He begins by acknowledging that the Galatians knew about his past. And if he hadn't shared it with him himself, the Judaizers no doubt had. He had persecuted the church. He had actually tried to destroy it. That in itself would naturally make him and his message suspect. How could you trust someone who had hunted down Christians tried to force them to renounce their faith and condemn them to death if they didn't? What if he was now a double agent, posing as an apostle, while actually seeking to condemn Christians to eternal damnation by preaching a false gospel? I'm sure the Judaizers had tried to use his past against him. Paul, however, disarms them by openly acknowledging his past, without trying to spin it. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't minimize it. He says he persecuted the church of God beyond measure. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't make excuses for what he did. He simply admits it. Yes, I tried to destroy the church. But the zeal he had shown in persecuting the church which he had thought to be a heretical departure from Judaism, could also now assure the Galatians that he now understood the Old Testament. And he knew it better than those who were challenging his understanding of the law. Before his conversion, he had been a top student of the law. In his testimony recorded in Acts, he revealed that he had studied under Gamaliel, that he was a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. He obviously understood the importance of circumcision to a Jew. Having been raised in a Jewish home, he had been circumcised on the eighth day. He was in every way what he declared himself to be in Philippians, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But as he also stated in Philippians, those things that he had once counted as so important, he now counted as rubbish in view to what he had found in knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He doesn't share that in so many words to the Galatians, 
but the surpassing greatness of what he had found in Christ and in grace will become evident in his letter to them. All he's doing now is disarming his critics by making sure his readers know that there are no skeletons in his closet. He openly shares both the bad and the good of his past, and he invites them to check him out. Anyone who would presume to teach you God's word should be willing to do the same. He should be open about his past and willing to let you know where he's coming from. And he shouldn't be offended if you check him out. If his answers are evasive and things just don't add up, you should dig a little deeper. It's vitally important that you have confidence in the character of anyone who would offer to teach you things of eternal significance. Now, you should be aware that anyone who would claim to speak for God will be painting a target on his back. He will be inviting people to take a shot at him. As a safeguard against unfounded accusations, Paul does tell us in 1 Timothy 5.13 not to receive an accusation against an elder, a pastor, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That means groundless rumors and personal animosity must be acknowledged for what they are and not taken seriously. Furthermore, I do not believe that youthful indiscretions Statements taken out of context or long ago repented of sins should be held against a man who is preaching the truth. Legitimate concerns, however, about his past or present life should be openly explored and they should be welcomed by the preacher. So don't be afraid to check out the preacher's past. While you're at it, check out his call. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I may preach him among the Gentiles. Let's stop there. Paul has been focusing on what he had done in the past. His focus now changes to what God did. Paul had been advancing in Judaism and was extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. But then God called him and set him apart to preach the gospel to Gentiles. At first, that did not make sense to Paul. He was certainly more qualified to preach to Jews who he fully understood than to Gentiles. In fact, after his conversion, he started preaching to Jews, confounding them, proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. But they responded by wanting to kill him. And he eventually had to be whisked out of town after being lowered in a basket through a hole in the city wall. Then when he got to Jerusalem, he stirred up the Jews to such an extent that the brethren sent him back home to Tarsus, after which Paul notes the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed peace. At first, Paul didn't understand God's call on his life. But he eventually came to understand that God had called him, even 
from his mother's womb to preach among the Gentiles. And this, by the way, makes it very clear that in God's eyes, a fetus is not only human, but fully a person worthy of protection while still in the womb. Even though Paul didn't know it at the time, God had set him apart for ministry before he was born, as he had done Jeremiah. When the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, he was told, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul had likewise been called into the ministry, and I'm convinced God still calls men into the ministry today. In Ephesians, while speaking of our mutual calling in Christ, Paul makes it clear that God has given to the church some who are gifted by the Spirit to serve as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. Now that we have the apostolic witness in written form and God's will for us as well as our future has been revealed, apostles and prophets are no longer needed in the church. But evangelists and pastor teachers are. And God still calls men to be such. I must confess, however, that I really don't know how such calls are made. When I was six years old, I let it be known I was going to be a preacher. I didn't hear any voices. I just knew it. And other than a brief period in the ninth grade when I thought I wanted to be a pathologist, (laughs) I've never doubted it. And some among us may have received a call even sooner than I did. Years ago, when asked what he wanted to be when he grew up, Jake said he wanted to be a janitor, like Rick. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) And just last week in Sunday school, Theo told Marilyn he was going to be a Chatham Christian Church preacher. (laughs) Only time will tell if those youthful declarations were premature. But if a preacher doesn't tell you of his call into the ministry, How do you know God called him into it? Well, you might start by simply asking him why he's in the ministry. What went into his decision to preach? Was it simply a career choice that he made? Or was it something he felt compelled to do? Years ago, I read a statement from a famous preacher that made a lot of sense to me. When asked whether someone should go into the ministry or not, he said if they can do anything else, they shouldn't. Now, he wasn't saying that if you don't have what it takes to make it in the real world of business and commerce, you should go into the ministry. He was saying if you know in your heart that you could never be content doing anything else, that you share Paul's passion expressed in, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, only then should you be a preacher. 
So even if a preacher doesn't verbalize his sense of call into the ministry, you should find evidence for it in his passion for preaching. And you may be able to discern it by trying to see what motivates him. If he appears to be more interested in pleasing people than pleasing the Lord, you might be justified in calling his call into question. And while it is true that those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel, a minister who seems unduly concerned with the material benefits of the ministry may have gone into the ministry for the wrong reasons. Now, we do have to be careful here because it's very dangerous to judge a man's motives. But what a man does in ministry may give an idea as to why he went into it. And more importantly, what he really believes and why he preaches what he preaches. And that brings us to something else we ought to check out. Check out his sources. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul wanted there to be no doubt about the source of the message he proclaimed. After God called him, he didn't consult with flesh and blood. He didn't ask anyone what he should preach. And he didn't go to Jerusalem to learn from the other apostles. He left Damascus and went to Arabia. Now, this is the only place where we read of that. And he doesn't tell us what he did while there, but the inference is that it was while there he received a message that he was to proclaim. And he's already said he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a good possibility that while he was alone in the desert, Jesus personally instructed him as to what he was to preach. I also think we're safe in assuming that while there, he reexamined the Old Testament to see what he had missed, that he studied the scriptures to understand how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and promises God had made. After his time in Arabia, he returned to Damascus until forced to leave through a hole in the wall. He then did go to Jerusalem, briefly met with Peter and James, but they didn't take him under their wing and mentor him. They were suspicious of him and only agreed to meet with him at the insistence of Barnabas. After a couple of weeks with them, at their insistence, he headed home to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. 
and then spent 10 or more years there preaching the message he had received from Christ. He shared this with the Galatians because he wanted them to know he was not feeding them a second-hand gospel, second-hand information. He was preaching them the gospel that he had received directly from the primary source. And while preachers no longer have the opportunity to learn directly from Christ in the desert, they can still get the messages they proclaim from the primary source. They can and should get their sermons from the Bible. That's not to suggest it's wrong for preachers to go to Bible college, consult commentaries, read sermons from other preachers, and even get things off the Internet. But if a preacher is actually getting the sermons he preaches from others, you might be justified in questioning his call to be a preacher. And if it becomes obvious he isn't getting the messages he preaches directly from God's word, you may need to do more than simply evaluate the accuracy of his interpretation and the appropriateness of his application. You may have to examine the theology of the one from whom he is getting his sermons. So you may have to check out more preachers than just the one who is preaching to you. Bottom line, you have to be careful who you listen to. You have opportunities to hear preachers every day on the internet. Some are good, some are not so good. Some will grab your attention and lead you astray. Others you'll skip over, and they were right on track. You've got to check out who you listen to. That's essential. That's essential. You must carefully check out anyone who would presume to teach you things of eternal significance. Now, obviously, Paul did want the Galatians to have confidence in him. And I pray you have confidence in me. But ultimately, the only one any of us can trust completely is the Lord himself. And it's the goal of my preaching to lead you to the place where you trust him and his word more than you trust any preacher. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for revealing the truth to us. Thank you for making it possible for us to discern whether the messages we are hearing are coming from men who have been called and equipped and prepared and who are listening to your word. Help us to be discerning. There are lots of voices out there proclaiming to know the truth. 
Some are doing it and some are not. But even those we trust can make mistakes, can interpret things through preconceived notions. So it's my prayer that each one of us will take personally the challenge to get into your word, examine the truth as revealed. And we'll know the truth so well that when we hear something that doesn't, doesn't quite ring true, the flag will go up and we'll go back to the word again. That's not to make us live in isolation from each other. That's not to assume that only we can understand the truth. But it prepares us as a body and as believers to come together and to study together and to think together and to seek your will together. That's what you've called us to be. That's why we gather on Sunday. We gather to worship, yes. We gather to remember, yes. But we also gather to learn and to study together. Help us to never lose sight of the goal of becoming Christ-like. Nor understand becoming Christ-like depends on knowing and following his word. You've taught us in your word what Jesus would do. Let's make sure we know it. In Christ's name, amen.